Welcome to the Abstract Veterans Podcast. Today, Char Gatlin and Kevin Sickinger speak with Aaron Bolden. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. Visit the Abstract Athlete for more information and news. The Abstract Veterans Podcast with Char Gatlin and Kevin Sickinger. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another awesome podcast of our Abstract Veteran Series. I am Dr. Char Gatlin, excuse me, and my uh, co-host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Kevin Sickinger, the uh, former military police officer. So always, always watch what you say when you call into the show <laughs> and you're around us. You don't, uh, you don't want Kevin on the case. You know, just not, not, not good, not good. Um. It's been a while since we've been on. It's been fun. Things are still great out here in Montana. It's warming up a little bit, which was nice. We were in the almost the 70s yesterday, but typical Montana fashion in the spring, it dropped down into the 40s again today. How's the weather over? Well, you're not in Virginia anymore, Kevin. You're up there in Maryland, right? Yeah, we're up in Maryland this week for the government steering committee meeting. And so it's 74, 75 degrees. It's actually warmer in Maryland than North Carolina, which is weird. How is the traffic going up there today? And we left early enough to miss it, so that was nice. Yeah, we have more than one car and a horse and carriage out here in Montana at the stoplight, and we have a we have a major problem on our hands. Can't really can't really take the traffic. But uh, hey, enough kidding aside. Uh, thanks for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. Today we have a, another very special guest, a Dr. Erin Bolden. Uh, Dr. Bolden has a background in, and we're going to let her talk about it here in just a moment. Actually, caregiving and in epidemiology, and seems to be a great fit for our show. As many of you know, this year that we kind of focused a little bit away from the research and kind of gone more into sort of the the caregiving component. You know, the folks that are actually down on the and not that researchers are, but that are down on the line. You know, knee deep in dealing with TBI and a lot of sequelae and a lot of the sort of community issues and engagement issues that pop up with it. So, Dr. Bolton, thank you for for being here and joining us. Uh, the clown show that is the we should call us the Char and Kevin shows that we should call it. I think. But uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, how you how you sort of came into the business and uh, focus of your research and anything you'd like to talk about. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be on the show. Um, so yeah, my background is in, as you said, epidemiology and public health. And I sort of, you know, fell into it. I was always interested in infectious diseases. And that's how I sort of learned about what epidemiology was sometime during college and found that people who had interesting sounding jobs had this MPH behind their name. So I had to figure out what that was. So I learned it was a master's of public health and decided to apply for a program. And once I got into it, I learned that epidemiology sort of started with understanding infectious diseases. And so I went that route for a while and thought I would do that sort of work. Um, but my first job after getting that MPH was with someone who was a disability epidemiologist. And I actually had you know, personal experience as most of us do with disability and a family member with a congenital disability and had worked with some kids who had various types of disabilities. And so um, it was actually a great fit for me. I really enjoyed it. Liked thinking about uh, the environment and communities as ways that we can, um, you know, enable people to better participate in society and thinking about disability, not as a specific condition, but as a relationship between people's communities, their environments, and their health. 
And so I've just kind of been on that path ever since. And eventually it led me to thinking about caregivers. So family members and friends who might support or assist people who do have disabilities or chronic health conditions, and then trying to think about ways to better structure healthcare delivery, um, health systems to, to meet everyone's needs and keep us all healthy. So in my 23 years in the Army, uh, had a lot of run-ins, not not personally, but uh, being police, we we saw a lot of, uh, I guess, infectious diseases. I guess you would say. Uh, mm-hmm. But afterwards, I've uh, been dealing more with the obviously the uh, disabilities. So, how how did you how did you end up with the the VA or dealing with veterans? And uh, did, is it a history? Do you have a background, history, family history of? Of veterans, or how, how how did that interest you? How how'd you end up there? Yeah, I do. I do have a couple of family members. My dad served. Uh, my grandfather's served, and a couple of friends are um, current or recently retired uh, post nine eleven era veterans. And so I yeah, I had sort of like disability. I had it around me and had interest in it, um, and I moved to Seattle eventually. I, I don't think I mentioned, I grew up in Florida and moved to Seattle in my twenties. And when I got there, I um, met someone who was a VA researcher. And so I started working for her there and uh, really enjoyed it. I, I just didn't, I guess I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. I hadn't intended to be within a healthcare system. And to that point, it was really more of my work was community-based, um, thinking about disability from, from a public health perspective. And so transitioning into a healthcare system was a little bit of a change for me, but like I said, I really enjoyed it. I think in a, VA does a lot of innovative work around designing healthcare programs and services to meet the needs of veterans. And so it was exciting to learn about that and be a part of it. Um, so I was there for a while and then I actually left. I was in North Carolina for a stint. And then um, I moved here to Salt Lake City a little over a year ago. And when I came here, uh, I was lucky enough to get back into the VA. And so I'm now at the University of Utah and the VA. It's interesting you mentioned Florida, just so sort of a side note, what what part did you grow up? I grew up in Orlando and uh, yeah, then went to school in Gainesville and stayed there for a while and worked for a a bit after I finished. No, I know the area. My a lot of family in the Panhandle there, and then uh, my brother uh, actually worked for the VA as a cartographer a few years in Gainesville. Many. Oh yeah, yeah. Many yes. many years ago, there were there were like four I think employed the entire system at that time. <laughs> yeah. And, and and they were out, but spent there a couple of years. Had a lot, had a lot of good times in Gainesville. That's for sure. I'd always go down and see them, and we figure out how to go one hour or the other to fish, whether they wanted to go for the the Atlantic it's a good spot. side. It is. It's a great spot. You know, you uh, you mentioned something a while ago the uh, the disability component and doing some research a while back. You know, I came across some statistical data, depending on, on how you look at it. But, but TBI or TBI related issues, I think, depending on how you look at it, has either and I could be wrong on this, but the second or third highest disability associated cost mm. in the in the country. Now, obviously, yeah. that depends on the metric that you want to use to to kind of measure that. And there are a lot of different ones, but bottom line, if it's rated in the top five, I mean, that is a lot. A lot of money. Talk a little bit about, if if you don't mind, sort of you know looking at sort of the the healthcare disability component and you know how to. And I would say policy policymakers what they would take away, but 
but looking at sort of the cost, you know, that, that TBI does and counting how it affects sort of the larger picture. That's that's a very broad question, but I'm I'm tossing it as such to kind of let you let you pick it apart and take it whichever way you wish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think certainly, as you said, there's a lot to a lot of directions we could go, a lot to unpack there. But um maybe I'll steer it towards the thing that I probably know the most about, <laughs> which is the home and community-based services. So that's that's really an interest of mine is um of course, it's important what people get in terms of healthcare in a traditional healthcare setting and what kinds of um, treatments and things they have available to them. But again, because I'm sort of interested in this community component and family members and friends and how they interact um, to support people with TBI and other kinds of disability, um, I'm also really interested in home and community-based services. And so that's a broad range of things that people can get access to, as the name implies, either in their own homes or in their for communities sure, around sure. So, you know, it's everything from home delivered meals to uh, adult day programs to having a home health aid or a homemaker come to the house and provide some support and assistance to caregivers getting respite, so kind of a break um, when they need it. And so, you know, I think those services are both really helpful for people living with TBI and for the caregivers. Um, it enables people to stay in the community if that's where they would prefer to be and um, really makes it more manageable if, you know, especially in cases where people might have kind of more intense medical needs, if you can get support at home um, rather than going to some to an institutional sort of setting. Um, I think a lot of a lot of veterans have that preference. A lot of families like being able to remain at home. So I think home and community-based services are a really nice and cost-effective option to enable veterans to have that choice to be able to choose where they get the services that they need and make sure that they're supported and that their family members are getting support and assistance when they need it. You know, it's it's interesting. You you mentioned some of the places that you you've worked and, and been around and you and you you kind of hit on sort of the urban environments sort or of the rural component and those two, two at odds, you know, someone like myself that lives out here in Montana where we have, I think nine of our 56 counties are actually considered urban and, and that's not by much. I did a, a, a survey for a course a while back. Anyway, I, I ended up controlling it by zip code. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because you can have a hundred thousand people in the county and they're all centered 90, 95% of in one corner but the rest of the county's rule, but yet it's considered urban by a census count because of the population count, whereas 75% of the people come on the freeway. So right, right. anyway, but but one of the things that uh, that you mentioned was the you know veterans being able to maybe thrive in that that home, that home health care, because you know it's not a one-size-fits-all policy. Mm -hmm. And it's it's difficult sometimes, particularly in a rural state, well, even urban as well, but for a for an individual, a veteran that may have some other and TBI could be secondary in this case behind a, a more or a more primary, you know, life threatening injury that, that warrants attention. But to come into a, a physician's office or or the VA or or something, uh, you know, Indian Health Affairs, you know, something like that and, and receive care because it just does not. You're putting a square peg in a round hole. Mm -hmm. So, you know, something like that is is essential, you know, for them for them to come out. But when you look at, as I said, maybe you can, can comment a little bit on but some of the challenges that, that you have seen in, in a rural environment. Now, yeah. I understand cost is going to be one because it could go up, but you could have less people. Right. But some of the, the um, I don't want to say impediments or challenges, maybe that's not the right word, but some of the um, some of the observations that you've made, you know, in rural environments that are um, 
maybe need to be addressed with, with a little more focus, you know, down the road, but makes yeah. any sense. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And certainly that it is a real challenge, you know, in some rural areas in particular to get um, services that, that folks need at home. And, you know, I think one of the things that we've seen that was kind of exacerbated during COVID was the availability of home health staff and, and paid caregivers. You know, it's a challenge, A, to great point. travel around to the, you know, people in a rural area may be pretty widely dispersed. Um, so the home health aid may have to drive really long distances between clients. And, you know, sometimes there are challenges that maybe their employer, they might have to use their own personal vehicle and they may or may not get adequate pay for mileage and that sort of thing. So that that can be a challenge or a barrier in terms of hiring people. Um, but there's just also, as you said, lower population density means there's just fewer people available to do those kinds of jobs. Um, so there have been some innovative solutions to that sort of challenge, and, and VA has a program called Veteran Directed Care, and it's similar to some other programs that Medicaid offers, for example, um, but it's a self-direction care program. So rather than having you know a certain number of hours paid for through a home health agency, veterans could um, who are enrolled in this program get a monthly budget that they can spend and then they can hire whoever they want to provide that in-home help. And so it could be someone who's already, you know, a family member or a friend who's kind of in that caregiver role. Um, or it could be somebody new, you know, that they know in their community or hear about through friends. So I think that's one nice option, especially in rural areas where you may not be able to get access to some of these services that could be helpful to be able to have that flexibility to hire someone who you know and trust or feel comfortable with coming into your and That's a huge takeaway for our listeners if you're out there, folks. I mean, there there are resources. I mean, they're, they're there. Sometimes they're, I don't want to say few and far between, and sometimes they're hard to find. So sometimes you've got to look to find the gold. I mean, don't get me wrong, but they they are there as you just, as you just heard. I mean, you just, uh, there's ways. They're, they're tough and they're slow coming sometimes, but there but there are ways. So... Yeah, and I think, you know, that's something that if if people are interested, that's something that, you know, talking with the, if you're connected with VA already and have a primary care team or a social worker, then they they would know more about the programs and availability that, um, you know, individual veterans and, and folks listening could connect with. No, and it's something else that you that you hit upon there, and I kind of more of an observation than, than a question, but a lot of times, and, and when you mentioned COVID and it, the restrictive environment, the supply chain breakdowns, the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, home health care is something where you're you're engaging with, with patients. You know, it's not behind a closed door. I mean, you're 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 there. You know, I mean you can wear all the protection in the world you want, but yeah, talk to like an EOD guy about that. You know, you can wear it all you want to in the world, but you're still going to be there. But one of the the challenges that I think that I've seen and I and I've heard about and you and you've highlighted is that a lot of times to the comment earlier I had about TBI being a secondary, you know, injury. So you have these home health care you know, specialists and they are specialists in a lot of ways that are targeting, you know, one specific um, sort of therapy or, or program or, or treatment paradigm, whereas an individual, you know, may have some other things, other things going on, mm -hmm. you know, that's going to require other types of maybe non-TBI related health care. And when you start looking at the and, and some of the frustrations and, and the obstacles you mentioned, you know, the cost, the, the time to distance, you know, the, the expertise involved. I mean, here in, in Montana, we don't have that many. As an example, and it's a little bit different. We don't have that many um, 
uh, a, a neurologist or, or neurosurgeon mm-hmm. in that nature. But, you know, and, and Kevin is probably right now, he can throw a baseball and hit about 20 of them. We just, we just don't have, we don't have that. And then when you look at some of the challenges, and, and this is a huge one too, that the care that the, the, the providers have, you know, burnout, fatigue, you know, dealing with people that, uh, you know, that may not be in the best mood, you know, mm-hmm. and then a lot of the, you know, the secondary issues that are sometimes overlooked, I think, by the general population that, that come with TBI and, and veterans associated with war. But I'm not necessarily talking about like comorbidities and so forth, because they are to some extent. But but I'm looking at, you know, the, um, you know, sort of the lack of employment sometimes, the substance abuse, you know, the familial, the familial issues, the, you know, the stigma, you know, and it's that guy, you know, in a small community where every everybody knows, you know, know, know everybody. I mean, there's there's counties probably back east that have more people than than our entire state. So um, maybe elaborate a little bit on kind of kind of what I hit at, sir. Uh, looking at not necessarily the caregiver. Well, you know what? You can do both here. So you you have the caregiver that's in the home that's dealing with these with these same things, you know, and you have the provider that's going to be dealing dealing with them too. But that provider may have an outlet, you know, when they go back to their home base of operation park the vehicle, you know, maybe there's some kind of decompression protocol. I mean, chances are there's not, but there's something, but that caregiver, you know, is, is locked in. Can you elaborate on maybe some, I don't know, not techniques as per se, but but some ways that, you know, that caregivers can take care of themselves, mm-hmm. you know, because if you don't take care of yourself, it's old adage, you know, you got to put your pro mask on first so you can help somebody else, because if you don't, you're not going to be helping anybody. And I, right. I don't mean to make that sound as morbid as it is, but you have a lot of caregivers in these, in these, and this is urban too, because you can have a rural component in an urban area that that aren't able to get out. They aren't able to engage. They aren't able to to blow off steam. Um, maybe elaborate a little bit on, on some of your research and some things that you've seen with that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great question and a, and a really important point. Um, we certainly see caregivers who are thriving and you know are enjoying the role and it strengthens relationships. Um, but there are also challenges, right? And people do have times where they may feel overwhelmed or need a break and feel like they can't get one. Um, so, I mean, I think, and to your other point about the the challenges, and you didn't say isolation, but I think sometimes that feeling can happen too, like you said, with, with stigma and things. Um, so, I mean, I think having a community approach is is helpful. You know, all of us can reach out and see if we can be helpful. But from a more proactive uh, stance for the caregiver perspective, there are, as I mentioned before, there is respite programs available through the VA and through community um, organizations, things like area agencies on aging often offer respite services too. And so that is designed to have someone who's trained and capable um, to spend time with the the veteran or the person who's receiving the care so that the caregiver can have some time to themselves. Um, there are also some caregiver, some really good evidence-based caregiver programs that VA and again, community agencies also offer some like um, building better caregivers and the reach uh, program through VA that give caregivers some training in skills, not, not, just caregiving skills, but skills to manage, you know, when they do have feelings of being overwhelmed or or having difficulties or even just communicating, communicating their needs to other people, kind of giving them some tools to ask for support from their friends and family when they need it, um, knowing how to reach out. 
to other people. For some caregivers, you know, caregiver support groups can be really helpful. And so those could be in person, but like you said, in some areas, they may not exist if there's not a large population of people. So there are virtual ones as well. Um, and again, I think, you know, if, if caregivers are connected to the caregiver support program through VA, there are additional resources and, and programs and respite as part of that program as well too. So again, I think, you know, reaching out as a starting point to um, a primary care team or a social worker in the VA is a good starting place and they can kind of point you in the right direction or checking with your community, public health or aging services organizations. And I will say as an aside, you know, a lot of these home and community-based services and even caregiver support programs to some extent have grown more on the aging side because in the general population, you know, people often, the the frequency of disability increases as we age. So a lot of these programs have been designed kind of with older people in mind, but that doesn't mean that they're limited only to older people. So even if you're caring for a younger veteran, um, you know, there's still good resources to at least start with. And that is some of the work we're doing now too, is trying to understand what kinds of programs and services younger caregivers and younger veterans really want in this home and community-based service space, because we expect there may be some you took my next question right there. I mean, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, you, you see how it helps with things. I mean, you lead me, you, you led me right to it then. I mean, I, I'm not going to try to back up too much here, but I'm going to take my, my consumer hat off for a minute. I'm going to put on more of my, my scientific hat here. Um, you know, you mentioned you're older, older and younger, right? And the VA's had a has a new caregiver initiative that's out there, and that because of the rise in technology, um, because of the, the social media platforms. I, yeah, and I'll use the term interconnectivity of, of the young. I'm 48, so I, I'm kind of in, in the middle, but the but the younger generation, you know, so they're they're talking a lot more, whereas the older generation, not not so much, but they came up with the mentality, you way tough it out. You know, it's 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 this is life, you know. Hey, I'm still walking and talking, right? And and that's there. I mean, I saw it with, with my parents, I'm sure you know, many of you have seen it with, with yours and in the community in this side. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, society has changed a bit, as I said, to the interconnectivity, the, the social concept, and then the, the technology. But when you look at the at the, the differences between older and younger, and it's funny that you mentioned that because aging, I, I would think, and I would agree 110%, the frequency is there. And also the, um, you know, the tendency, well, not tendency, but to, I mean, well, the frequency of developing other, you know, uh, disability compensated issues. So, you know, I mean, I'm in mean, dementia. I've seen all over some of some of your work, but um, you know, as folks get older, there there's there's a whole whole slew of, of things. You know, that they're growing. It's called it's called life. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of the the money is is going that way. But when you have a the, the younger folks, you know, who are offered more, um, they're more. I'm, I'm seeing more avenues of assistance, like with technology. You know, the, the do it at your home. You know, handheld device. The um, and the telehealth. Which which younger folks are, are much better than, but when you look at sort of the the heterogeneity in these in these two populations, you know how and you hit on it. And I kind of kind of cut you off a little bit, but but how is your research kind of accounting for that? And and what you know what is your message out there for? Well, yeah, I'm going to throw a policymaker out there a little bit, you know, but also you know someone maybe listening to to, to this show. Yeah, so I mean, it, I think we we still are seeing that the primary users of most of these home and community based services that I mentioned are older, 
veterans and older adults outside of VA. So it is still predominantly older people who are using the services, but we increasingly, and especially within VA, um, you know, see more and more middle-aged and younger veterans who are using services or could benefit from them. So who have, you know, similar kinds of injuries or disabilities as older people, but maybe just aren't getting connected with the services. And so we're actually still in kind of the early stages of figuring out whether that's, you know, an interest, you know, is it, is it that they're getting referred, but just not really interested in the kinds of services that are available or if they're just not getting connected. Um, and so the, we're just starting a study now that is focused on post 9-11 veterans who have TBI and other kinds of um, conditions to see what, what are their preferences? What do they want? You know, is it that these services aren't exactly what they need? Maybe they have young kids at home too. And so it's not as simple as having um, a respite provider come in to provide some time off for the caregiver because they would also need childcare. You know, is it is it that we need to link different kinds of services together or do they really want different kinds of support than the existing programs offer? So, I mean, I would say so far, I, I don't really know yet um, what the what the specific needs are or how, how the use varies, but we're just starting to look at that. And so hopefully we'll have more information on that soon. And so we'd also love input from anyone listening, you know, if you have thoughts or comments, we'll, we'll be doing some interviews and things as part of the formal research process, but we're certainly open to any input um, that people have that they want to share. No, and, you know, and uh, you know, we'll encourage you to give whatever, whatever links, you know, that you have, I will be more than happy to post on here. Well, we love doing it, even for folks that are you know, kind of sort of tied into limbic sensory, maybe folks that are on the outside. And, you know, we've always said that here, you know, if you, if you have a problem, give us give us a buzz. We, we'll try to help. And if we can, if we can't, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best to point you in the right direction. I mean, that's kind of kind of how we serve. But I'll, I'll give you this observation here. And this I'll be your I'll be your first here. Great. First, Thank first, you. Uh, I have my pen ready. One of the one of the things that I've seen and I, I was wounded back in 2006. So I was a former infantry officer. And I'm As I said, I moved on in my life, kind of put some of that behind me. But one of the things that, I, that I've heard about anyway, I shouldn't say I've seen it directly, but, but in our challenging sort of uh, socioeconomic time that we live in here, you know, with, with COVID, um, you know, a lot of the sort of misinformation that's going around, you know, the social distrust, and I'm not going down that road, I'm just stating as, as a matter of fact, you know, in the VA, to, as, you, as you point out, it's gotten a lot better. I mean, it's gotten a lot better. I never really, in, in I, and I know a lot of others never really had it was huge issues with the VHA side of the house. It's more, it was more the VBA. And I, and I think a lot of folks out there that really aren't in the service, the VA's kind of broken up into three, three parts. You've got the VBA, the VHA, which benefits health, and then you have funerals and service. And unfortunately, those folks are starting to get their fair chunk of business with the, uh, with our Vietnam brothers and sisters and, and our Korean grandfathers and brothers and grandfathers and grandsisters and grandsister grandmothers and grandfathers that are excuse my, my speech sometimes um I mean that was a long introduction to it but I, but I think there's a level of mistrust sometimes when it comes to the caregiving world because a lot of folks out there may think that when people are coming into their home you know to provide to provide services that some of this this information that is that they see that they hear that they whatever they could end up going back and, and reporting for lack of a better term mm. and you know the powers that be may start looking at well, is this person really that hurt? You know, do they really need this? And, and I'm not 
not saying that happens. In fact, I'm pretty sure it doesn't happen. But there is that level of sort of miscommunication and, and, and mistrust. And I know a lot of folks, you know, they were having challenges with the VA, you know, several years ago before they underwent some significant and much needed changes. Still thinking in that mentality. So maybe something to think about, you know, a different way to to address and assure you know, the, the individual that's receiving the care and, and the caregiver, you know, by and large in the community that like, hey, you know, we're here to we're here to help. We're not here on a on a on a secret mission. And I know that's right. kind of making it overly simplistic, but you know, coming from from my background and knowing a lot of folks that are you know missing arms and legs and a lot of other things as well, you know, that's uh that's always a huge concern. So that's uh that's all I've got. Kevin, you're back. That's oh my really God. helpful. Been here the whole time. I just didn't have my camera. Then I'm a camera because I'm working with this crummy hotel connect. He's the MP guys. He was writing this stuff down. I'm telling you, he's gonna <laughs> listening the whole time, waiting for my shot at glory. <laughs> oh my goodness. I do, I do have one question before we sign off. And you guys talked a lot about older versus younger uh veterans. Um and Char and I are, are veterans of the same conflict, but uh, he's he's 12 years younger than I am. But one thing I'd be interested in hearing your quick review of, have, have you dealt with non-veterans? And what is the difference in population? Because you mentioned older population, not necessarily all veterans. Do you see a difference in the population of veterans versus, you know, older veterans versus older non-veterans? And uh, there, it, it kind of leads back to what Charles was talking about a little bit. You know, the VA is awesome once you get through the bureaucracy part. The people that work there are awesome. It's getting yes. through that front desk that is absolutely the hardest part. Uh, and so, you know, is there? Do you see a difference, or have you seen a difference, or have you even looked at difference between how a sixty-year-old person dealing with the same injuries got them in a different way than a sixty-year-old veteran? Wow, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I actually don't know. We have not looked at a direct kind of head-to-head -head comparison. Um, and I'm trying to think of whether I've seen other work that does, and it's probably out there, but it's not coming to mind immediately. <laughs> so, I mean, we, I, I think generally, um, you know, the, the use of these home and community-based services, because I, I think I mentioned before, you know, some some are covered for some time through Medicare and then Medicaid offers a lot of similar services to what the VA offers. So, um, you know, we do see a fair amount of use of those services. And again, it's it's predominantly older adults in civilian settings who are using those home and community-based services. But it is a good question about um, kind of direct comparison and also preferences, uh, differences in preferences for veterans and non-veterans. And I'm, I'm not sure that's as well understood. And if it is, then I just am not, <laughs> not up to speed on it. So I apologize. I've seen a lot of studies these days where they're, they're doing, I do a lot of peer in programmatic review as well, but they do, they're looking at a lot of cohorts where, where they're bringing in for civilian side of the house and you're trying to do age matches and stuff like that. However, it, it's, it's difficult because, you know, the mechanism of injury, some of the, you know, associated uh, sort of challenges that go with it, you may not face in civilian side. So, I mean, you can go to police, to fire, to athletes. I mean, it's, and, and you know, as, as well as I do, I mean, that's all over the place and they're, they're looking for, it. but I think that was a great question. I mean, you have, you know, way this, this, this conflict went on for, for years, you could have a, you know, a 55 year old reserve. And a, a great example, we'll close up. I can sit here and talk to you all day about this actually, because I, I, I don't know if it's a public health thing we got going on or it's just a, yeah. just a, a, a very, very interest. 
But there was a, a lady that I knew many years ago. Uh, she was in her fifties and she got activated um, to go to go to Iraq. And uh, <laughs> she was a male lady. She was making her rounds one day, delivering her letters, and they had more round drops on her. Boom, you know. And it, uh, you know, luckily she lived. You know, I mean, she had a severe TBI. Spent a lot of time in the hospital. But you know, at that time I was running around. I was probably early thirties. You know, so you have a significant difference here, as Kevin pointed out. You know, in age, and we'll toss in, you know, biological sex and, and everything else that kind of, kind of, kind of go with this and the challenges associated with. And there's no two TBI pathways that are going to be the exact same way. You know, so you, you look at that, and I mean, that's just almost impossible to do research. I mean, you got to throw your net wide on that one. But it's a, but it's a very good, it's a very good point that that he brought up. So it is. Um, it is. Now, I could talk to you all day, but Ron's giving me the kind of eyeball up here, so I probably need to to close this up. So, Dr. Bold and Aaron, do you have any any last closing comments for us or anyone listening or or any ball is in your court, my lady? Just just thank you all again for this opportunity and the conversation. And as I said before, certainly open to I will share my email address. We don't have a specific project website or anything for this this home and community-based service um, project, but emails would be great if folks have comments, experiences they want to share. We are all ears. No, that's great. That's great. Kevin? And Char and I will schedule the next uh, Consumer Advisory Board. And I know you wanted to chat with, with the larger group. So we will we will set one of those up and we'll, we'll contact you and see what's good for you. Um, we've been Consumer Advisory Board heavy with website and other uh, content from our knowledge translation uh, section. So this would be a good avenue for, for them to go down a little bit and help you out great sure yeah. Yeah, the, the fall or even next year would be excellent if there's time available um, we'll be doing some analyses where we're just looking at health system records to see what the post 9-11 cohort of veterans is using currently in terms of home and community-based services and then the next step is to do some interviews and then some kind of ranking surveys once we've gotten information from those interviews about what what people really want to see in terms of these services so that's mostly what I'd love feedback and thoughts from the community advisory board on is, are we asking the right questions and do the surveys make sense? And yeah, what, what their take on everything. Definitely help you set that up. Great. Yeah, it's a good one. Yoga, it's a, there's some powerhouses in their field. They're very direct, very candid, and they always have some really good insight. And it's always a pleasure working with them because I walk away learning something every time that, that a meeting comes together with this group. So, Excellent. so with that folks, we won't keep you. Oh, did you have anything else? Dr. Bowman? Nope. Nope. Oh, no. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you for being here. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Trust me, it's all on, all on this end. I, and I don't know, I may follow up on the side, actually. You don't, you don't mind to chat down the road. I've got some, some interesting observations myself. Maybe I can point you in the right direction on, on, on some things to, to check out. Um, but with that, folks, hey, thanks for tuning in. And we'll get those links uh, up as, as soon as we can. And, you know, the big takeaway here, ladies and gentlemen out there, is that, you know, you're not alone in this. There, there's resources. There's people to talk to. You know, when you think you're having challenges, trust me, it's not necessarily the guy across the street that's having it could be the person next door. You know, as, as it was pointed out in the show, you know, as long as this conflict went on, not to mention the others before, you know, these these injuries, these these problems, these trials and tribulations we all face aren't necessarily buttonholed into to one generation post 9-11 or pre-9-11. I mean, it could be it could be any anywhere, anytime, folks. You just you just don't know the only way to get over it is to kind of work together and to right the ship and to move it forward. So with that, thank you for tuning in. Uh, hopefully we'll see you, I don't know, within the next month. We've got another guest uh, getting lined up, another caregiver, a lot of fun. I think she'll be fun to speak with. But 
thanks to the uh, the team that remains unseen, my cohort, uh, Kevin, and Ron in the top, in the box up top that I guess keeps the uh, keeps the wheels of turning on the show. Folks, have a good time and uh, be good, stay safe, and we'll see you next time around on the Abstract Veteran Series. Until then, have a good day. Thank you to Aaron Bolden for joining Char Gatlin and Kevin Sickinger today on the Abstract Veterans Podcast. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. The Abstract Veterans is produced by the Abstract Athlete. For more information, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on all of our social media platforms under the Abstract Veterans, the Abstract Doctors, and the Abstract Athlete. See you soon with our next episode.